and welcome back to KHM's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, January 21st at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Tammy Luby of CNN. Good morning. So happy inauguration, ladies. We have a new president, the first female vice president, and they have a pretty hefty health agenda. So I thought we would devote today's episode to just that. We're going to start where President Biden is starting with COVID. Among the first round of executive orders issued last night were several that were COVID-related, including a mask order for federal workers and contractors and people in federal buildings and on federal lands. Also, the U.S. is rejoining the World Health Organization and reestablishing the Pandemic Preparedness Office in the National Security Council that Trump had disbanded. Anything unexpected here or anything that was expected that we haven't seen? And I should point out that if ever there was a day that news might be happening while we're talking, news might be happening while we're talking. Um, I would say that there wasn't really anything unexpected. These are the things that Biden had campaigned on and had pledged throughout the transition. He has a team of experts who's been advising him for months and months, and they've been signaling these very steps. And I think the new things we're hearing from them, and they held a call for a reporters last night to preview the orders that are coming today on COVID specifically that Biden will talk about later today. And what was new is that they said that during the transition and since taking office and really getting access to all of the data from federal agencies, they were just more flabbergasted than than previously to learn how bad things were in terms of the vaccine rollout and the lack of a strategy for getting vaccines into arms. There was mainly a focus under the Trump administration of getting vaccines out to states. And then basically the message was, governors, it's your problem now. That is not going to be the case for the Biden administration going forward. They pledged to use FEMA resources and other federal resources to open up way more vaccination sites, making sure that they're not just at hospitals and pharmacies, since many low-income neighborhoods don't have a hospital or pharmacy, but opening up sites at churches, sports stadiums, all kinds of places that people can get to more easily, schools, etc. And we don't have enough places to get vaccinated and we don't have enough people doing the vaccinations. And so they want to broaden the categories of who can give the shots and train more folks. But a lot of this depends on getting Congress on board. So it could be a rocky road ahead. Perfect segue because President Biden actually unveiled his broader COVID action plan last week. I think it was last week, which frankly doesn't seem all that outside the box. It involves more federal help with vaccinating and providing personal protective equipment and a communications effort aimed at those who are most at risk and those who are most hesitant to get the shot. And oh, yeah, delivering that 100 million doses in the first 100 days. Um, I guess sort of two questions here. Can they actually do this, given what they know now? And will it be enough? I think it's going to be tricky to know whether it's going to be enough at this point as we have these new variants that are spreading that are incredibly contagious. So you really have to increase the pace of vaccination even more and clamp down on other public health measures. If you do that in tandem, which it seems like Biden is hoping to do, increase testing and contact tracing 
And as you mentioned, nothing in this plan is sort of out of the box. It's everything people have said we need to do in the U.S. for about a year now. And they're just sort of finally putting the momentum there. So I think if he combines those other measures with vaccination, we'll probably be in good shape because we know that we can prevent a lot of people from getting this virus through non-vaccination efforts, through kind of simple public health measures people have been stressing this whole time. It's just a matter of fully committing to them and following through and putting the resources in to do that. One of the issues we're having here in New York, which our governor and our mayor has said, is that they are opening up more sites. And, you know, as you mentioned, they're opening them in churches and in recently in our public housing complexes in New York City. But we're running out of vaccines. So we just don't have enough supply. And I don't know when we're going to be able to get more. I mean, the governor has asked for Pfizer and Moderna to send directly, and that's apparently not going to be happening. But there have been tens of thousands of people who've had their appointments canceled because there just isn't enough of a supply. And also, it's just been impossible to try to get the vaccine. We've been trying to get it for a friend of ours who's 91, who's a cancer patient and undergoing radiation. And we were trying for weeks and she finally, her doctor was able to get her an appointment last Saturday. But it shouldn't be that difficult here in New York. One thing that will be interesting with the Biden team is they've said they want to use the Defense Production Act, and they've certainly indicated they'll use it for sort of supplies around vaccination, but can they use it in any way to increase the actual production of the vaccines itself? And that would help a lot. Do Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca get their vaccines cleared through FDA in the next couple months? That would also help a lot. But like you mentioned, um, I think ProPublica had a really good story this week. States have only been given kind of a week by week, like one week advance notice of how many shots are coming to them. So they've had trouble planning adequately. And I know like DC's mayor too has keep sending out notices and saying, we're really sorry, but we have 86,000 singers or something like that. We have all this demand and we're getting, you know, 4,000, 8,000 shots a week. Everyone will eventually get a shot who wants a shot, but it's not going to be right away. And so the Biden administration is going to have to figure out how to deal with that public expectation while also hoping to get more supply faster. Yeah. And also, I mean, the idea of all of these different states and different counties, it's being done county by county, having different ways to sign up. And it's very confusing. You know, here in the Washington area, in D.C., you can sign up if you're over 65. But I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, where it's only open if you're over 75. And like in New York, I've seen a lot of reports of, you know, you get an appointment and then people get there and find out they've run out. I mean, there just isn't, there physically isn't enough vaccine. So, I mean, this really is going to be kind of an uphill measure. Actually, Tammy, what I was going to ask you um, was, that this COVID plan is more than about sort of the vaccine and public health. There's a lot of economic aspects to it, too, to help combat the vaccine, to combat the pandemic, right? I mean, he's definitely looking at helping a lot of low-income workers and frontline workers. You know, he wants to definitely put them at the front of the line, but also help them in terms of, you know, the unemployment benefits, food stamps, the eviction proceedings. There's definitely a lot of things that he's trying to do overall. And I think you know, we saw that particularly in his inauguration yesterday, where there was a lot of shout outs to frontline workers and people who are, you know, putting their lives on the line. But of course, the issue is getting them ultimately, yes, you can help them economically, but you need to get the vaccine to protect them. And also, of course, to protect everyone to bring back 
the jobs because once we get more people with the vaccines, people will be able to go out to restaurants, go out shopping and, you know, do things that will bring back jobs for these folks. So it appears that Biden is going to spend each of the next 10 days on executive ordering many of the things President Trump did by executive order, leaked documents, and actually I guess they've said this now, uh, suggest that Health Day will be January 28th, so next Thursday. But none of this is going to be easy. Yes, he can reverse things like the Mexico City policy that restricts federal funding to international family planning groups that support abortion. But the domestic version of that policy was done by regulation and will have to be undone by regulation. And that takes time and expertise and resources. And lots of people are expecting a lot of things to be done first when not everything can be done first. How's the new administration going to balance the demands to quickly erase things that took the Trump administration four years to get done? And what are you guys watching for? Well, one thing that I found interesting, this is not quite some an erasure, but something that Biden campaigned on was that he tucked in to his $1.9 trillion relief package, increasing ACA subsidies so that no one pays more than 8.5% of their income, which is definitely the main part of his campaign. He also wants to uh, have COBRA subsidies for several more months this year. So for people who've lost their jobs, they can continue on their employer coverage. But yeah, it is not going to be easy for him to do everything. I mean, some things will be easy where he'll be able to, you know, better market and assist people with the Affordable Care Act, but that's really going to come later in this year. The things I'm looking for, of course, are what is he going to do with the lawsuit before the Supreme Court? Is he going to ask Congress to put in a nominal figure for the uh, individual mandate penalty or, or something else along those lines? But of course, I'm also interested in Medicaid with the work requirements and uh, the block grants. So he's got a lot on his agenda and he doesn't have a CMS administrator yet. Yeah. A lot of people I've talked to said that the Medicaid work requirements has to come first because that's right in front of the Supreme Court right now. Um, I mean, obviously, the ACA case is in front of the Supreme Court, too, but there's not that's not the administration's case. Um, so there's not that much they can do about it, except, as Tammy said, get Congress to make it moot by either taking all the mandate language out or putting in a nominal fee. Um, that nominal fee, by the way, and we'll get to this a little bit later, probably can't be done in budget reconciliation because you can't do things that are nominal, I sort of forgot. Um, Alice, what are you looking for? So there are a couple things that Biden can do without Congress and pretty quickly that states and labor groups have been clamoring for for a long time that could make a difference on the COVID front. One is ramping up workplace enforcement. We've seen a lot of factories and other work sites where there have been huge virus outbreaks and, you know, uh, workers have lodged complaints saying that they were put at risk and not given the ability to social distance, etc. And the Trump administration did almost nothing to have enforcement of workplace safety rules during the pandemic. Biden has signaled that's going to change. He's going to direct OSHA to crack down. Also, something I've been tracking for a long time, they're going to increase the federal funding for the National Guard's COVID work back up to 100%. It was cut down to 75% by the Trump administration for most states. And that is something states uh, say they desperately need. You know, they're depending on National Guard troops more than ever to do testing and vaccinations and setting up field hospitals, etc. Sarah? looking for anything in particular on the on the executive order front? There are certainly things I'm watching to see if he overturns from the Trump last act. They've tried to, you know, make it 
much harder for HHS to keep rules in place over the long term. So they've put in policies to sunset rules that would really burden FDA. They've also put in last minute policies around essentially reviews of long term career scientists that could also become very burdensome and seem to be a bit of a last minute stab in the back to folks at these agencies who they felt like weren't on board with some of their COVID response efforts. So those are some of the top line things I'm looking for to see if they reverse. There was, by the way, actually, I spent much of the day trying to make sure I was on the new White House press list. But there was a memo from Chief of Staff Ron Klain basically freezing all regulations, which is the prerogative of the incoming administration to do while they figure out sort of what to undo first. So I think that last one, I think, is probably in the in the list of things that are that are frozen for the moment. But let's talk about what might be possible legislatively, because also on Wednesday, the Democrats took control of the U.S. Senate with the swearing in of New Georgia Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock fresh off their runoff victories, the swearing in of Alex Padilla to replace California Democrat Kamala Harris, which gives them 50, and of course the swearing in of Harris as vice president, which means she can break ties. But 50 plus a tiebreaker isn't really a majority. The last time there was a 50-50 Senate was in 2001 when George W. Bush took over and Democrats and Republicans in the Senate had a formal power sharing arrangement with equal numbers of each on on the committees. Although the Republicans, because they had the vice president at the time, there were Republicans who served as chairman. Um, Alice, that's what they're trying to work out here too, right? Yes. We've, we've been hearing basically the same message for months that they want to move on a COVID relief bill on a bipartisan basis. Uh, that's their preference. That's what lawmakers say their preferences. That's what Biden says his preferences. But they are very much putting it out there that they are ready to go with reconciliation if necessary. Um, the question is, how long will they wait to see if Republicans are going to get on board and how much will they compromise and, and water down and, and shrink the bill uh, in an attempt to get Republican votes before they just decide to go it alone? I guess getting rid of the filibuster is off the table when you only have 50 votes, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, Schumer is resisting uh, McConnell's request that he promised to keep the legislative filibuster, which is something very interesting. So we'll see how that power struggle plays out. But there there are, you know, some more conservative Democratic lawmakers who don't support getting rid of the filibuster. And so it would difficult. be difficult. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so having majority, obviously, you know, even a technical majority is going to make it a lot easier to approve cabinet members. We haven't heard much about uh, Javier Becerra, the the nominee for HHS. I, I saw some, I saw him sort of going around and visiting with senators. But uh, as far as I know, we haven't even seen a hearing scheduled yet, right? And he gets two hearings. He gets a hearing at finance and he gets what's called a courtesy hearing at the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. And I haven't seen either one of those noticed yet. No, the committees say they're still looking at his paperwork. And you would have thought a couple months ago, that the health team would be the very first thing the Senate would want to get in place, given that we're in the most deadly phase of the pandemic to date. I think that the national security folks uh, jumped to the front of the line in part because of all the crisis that converged recently from the insurrection at the Capitol to the massive cyber attack on government servers. And so I, I think that changed the calculus. But I think there is a lot of pressure to get a health team in place. They announced all the acting uh, folks yesterday um, so that they you know, don't have uh, nobody steering the ship uh, in the meantime. And, and what do you guys think about actually 
getting stuff through Tammy, you you know said noticed that there was the uh, Affordable Care Act subsidies in that COVID package. I think there's also a minimum wage increase in that package. Yes. I mean, it's the it's it's kind of a big wish list for it a fifty fifty Senate. It is, for sure. I mean, you know, and that's what a lot of people are saying. And that's what the right is arguing, saying you're talking about unity, but you're throwing in, you know, the the Democratic Christmas tree, you know, and why is the $15 minimum wage there? Why are there some certain tax benefits bolstering the EITC, which actually does have bipartisan support, but hasn't been done, you know, the child tax credit, like, you know, there are things in there that you wouldn't think would be in there if it's an emergency relief package. But, you know, he's arguing again, as sort of hearkening back to what we said before, is that this is going to help the frontline essential workers who've been really hard hit by the pandemic. So there, there, there's a theoretical justification for it. I'll also say that lawmakers on the Hill are already discussing moving a, you know, just a few pieces of this first, such as just the stimulus checks and just money for vaccines and try to get that out more quickly while they negotiate on the broader package. So that is one thing we could see in the weeks ahead. And I get to point out as the person who's covered the most reconciliation bills, I think it's 14, that in order to do budget reconciliation, which lets you pass a bill with only 50, you know, 51 votes in the Senate, you first have to do a budget, which they haven't done. (laughs) And doing a budget means getting a budget resolution through the House and the Senate and then agreeing on it. In 2017, when the Republicans tried to use budget reconciliation to repeal the Affordable Care Act, they were in the same position. There had been no budget from the year before. So in theory, they could do last year's budget for the current fiscal year that we're in, plus the budget for next year, which they're supposed to do in March or April. And you can have two reconciliation bills, one tax, one spending for each budget resolution. But in 2017, they had the budget resolutions done before Trump got inaugurated. They were because the Republicans had control of the House and the Senate. They started right away um, in, in early January and their budget was done. And obviously, that's not the case now because the Democrats only took over the Senate formally yesterday. So they're all already well behind. And one would presume that they would not do sort of a bulleted budget resolution, which is what the Republicans did in 2017, because it was only for the Affordable Care Act. They would want to do probably a full budget resolution. And boy, that just doesn't take a day or a week. It takes several weeks. And then you would have to do that. And then you would have to do the reconciliation bill. So there's, you know, it's in theory, they could do that. But there's absolutely no way that they could do that fast. But that's why he's issuing so many executive orders because he wants to be seen as hitting the ground running. So he's doing what he can, you know, presidentially. uh, And we'll see what happens and how fast things go through the Senate. I mean, look at how difficult it was to get the December relief package through. It took months. And, you know, I think a lot of Republicans are sort of saying, hey, you know, it's only been a few weeks since the December bill. You know, we don't know how the stimulus checks and the, you know, increased UI is going to filter through the economy. Do we need another relief package with all of that yet? Yeah, none of this is going to be easy. But while, you know, a lot of President Biden's health promises seem pretty unattainable in such closely divided Congress, it seems unlikely we will see a public option anytime soon or lower the Medicare eligibility age to 60, there does seem to still be a pretty strong bipartisan desire to address prescription drug prices. Sarah, you're our drug price expert here. What do you see as possible coming out of this Congress and this administration on the drug price front? I think there's a drug pricing bill that could pass both houses of Congress. 
I don't think it's a particularly progressive liberal bill. It's probably not what the House passed last year um, using international reference pricing as part of Medicare drug negotiations. And it's probably going to look a lot more like the Grassley-Wyden bill um, in the Senate from last cycle, which Senator Wyden has already indicated he wants to kind of revive and hopefully strengthen to some degree. I mean, Biden is somebody that has never been... Yes, his campaign promises on drug pricing were fairly left of center, but in the past, he's not been somebody to go particularly hard after the industry and actually has kind of close relationships with them from past projects. There's obviously all the COVID dynamics of kind of needing to work very closely with the industry right now um, with vaccines. The other interesting thing, my colleague talked to Jim Greenwood, a lobby, um, a former um, head lobbyist for the industry and former congressman, and he's really been pushing the industry for a number of years now to kind of come to the table, make a compromise before it's too late. And so I think that the drug industry maybe does have this incentive to try and push some Republicans to get on board with a bipartisan compromise before there's a potential for Democrats to ram through something stronger that they don't like. Speaking of which, how much of what President Trump did on drug prices by executive order, I'm thinking of allowing drug importation, most favored nation to basically attach to other countries' drug price controls uh, and lowering insulin prices for some people at least. Will the Biden administration keep and how much can they keep given that most of these things have ended up in court? That's going to be a very interesting question. Um, Like the most favored nations um, rule sort of was basically put on hold by the courts with this understanding that the lawsuit essentially would be dropped as long as CMS went back to like the regular rulemaking process. They were trying to expedite it under this idea that it qualified under the COVID public health emergency as something you could just finalize really fast. And that got squelched pretty fast (laughs) by the courts. Um, Again, that rule in many ways does look a bit like Biden's kind of campaign promise and what Democrats have wanted. But that being said, I would think it probably has a lot of problems in terms of how it was written, the legalities and so forth. And they might not be interested necessarily in modifying a Trump agenda item. And then the look of that, if they do take it forward, they're probably going to have to really assess it further to make sure it's kind of insulated from some of these legal issues. There's a few other things like the insulin deal you talked about is really through a CMMI demo type project. They might keep that. It's probably not you know, and see what happens. What what are, what are the results? Do they expand it? There's the um, rebate rule to try and eliminate rebates that the Trump administration also put in very fast. That's a complicated one. The pharmaceutical industry really likes that. It would actually cost the government a lot of money, but it is a sort of popular idea. The one thing I wonder is there's always been this idea that if that rule goes into effect, Congress could then kind of get rid of it and use that as like savings. It's a weird gimmick, right? If it was going to cost the government money and perhaps you could see Democrats wanting to do that just to help themselves out in in that regard. You laugh. This happens all the time when you have sort of a, a unified sort of Congress and the president in the same party. There are always these fights about who gets to do this and claim the savings because if Congress claims the savings, they can spend it back. 
Right. Of course, there's also, again, there's legal challenges from the um, pharmacy benefits managers, health insurance industry against this role. Again, I'm not sure the Biden administration is going to want to have to deal with these legal challenges and so forth and defending those for that potential carrot later on. Certainly the drug pricing stuff is going to be interesting because there is a little bit of alignment in the Democrats' policies with what the Trump administration tried to do. But often in practice, what the Trump administration did was done in kind of a clunky way that I think may make the Biden team not want to embrace it, particularly, again, while they're dealing with COVID and have other front burner priorities and they can't just kind of expend a lot of staff to kind of clean up those messy rules. Yeah, a lot of this is going to be about resources. So but before we close here and move on to our extra credits, is there sort of one thing on the health agenda that you're going to be sort of curious to see whether it sort of comes up given all the emphasis on COVID? Alice? Biden's team has confirmed that they will be rolling back the Mexico City policy, the ban on foreign aid going to groups that uh, provide abortions or provide information about abortions in other countries. But there are a lot of other abortion related measures that groups are leaning on the new administration to take. One is, you know, the Supreme Court recently allowed the Trump administration's policy of making people who need to get an abortion pill pick it up in person during the pandemic. So there is pressure on the Biden administration to uh, change those rules so that people can get it through telemedicine. There's also the uh, Title X rule, and that could be a more challenging policy to roll back, but that would ensure that clinics like Planned Parenthood could get those family planning dollars. So lots of things on that front. Cami, anything you're watching? I think more longer term, not necessarily in the next couple of weeks. How is the new CMS administrator going to sort of change the relationship with the states? You know, under Seema Verma, there was a lot of view of, okay, you know, we can widen Uh, 1115 waivers and 1332 waivers for the Affordable Care Act to kind of put in more Republican views of, again, you know, work requirements, higher premiums, you know, things along those lines. So I'll be watching to see what the new uh, guidance is to states. But then also one thing that a lot of people are concerned about is that under the uh, some of the relief bills, I think it was Families First, the states can't kick people off of Medicaid right now during the public health emergency. And so if that ends later this year, there's a concern among consumer advocates that a lot of people on Medicaid are going to lose their coverage. That states, particularly red states, are going to make it hard again for them to re-enroll or enroll or st- you know stay enrolled, et cetera. So there's uh, already you know a push by some advocates to have the Biden administration put in rules that will make it harder for states to disenroll. So I'll be looking for that as well, particularly because we know so many more people have joined Medicaid because they've lost their jobs in the pandemic. Sarah? Drug pricing is really the big thing for me right now and how COVID impacts that. The other thing I'm interested to see is in this public health emergency, this emergency use pathway at the FDA has been this sort of go-to way to get products out to the American public faster, and it's never been used on this scale. And so I'm interested in does Congress sort of see what's happened from this emergency and how that's worked? And do they feel like that needs to be changed? Because it's baffling to me how little this pathway, particularly for drugs and vaccines, was used before on this kind of mass scale product and what's happened now. And there are certainly lots of things with the Trump administration um, regarding that that were controversial. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any sort of modifications to that for the next potential health crisis. 
<laughs> and I, I, I'm don't want to jinx us in how I phrase. I'm kind of with Alice, although I'm looking sort of more big picture on sort of women's reproductive health because there's a lot of pressure from the the you know abortion rights groups to act fast and dramatically and things like let's get rid of the Hyde Amendment, which of course is a legislative thing, but it would go in the president's budget. Joe Biden, I've covered Joe Biden for. 35 years, you know, he is, he's a good Catholic from very, fairly moderate state, Delaware, and he's never been an ardent abortion rights backer, although he's been, he's been a fairly reliable vote for most of his career. Like a lot of Democrats, he didn't used to be, but, you know, sort of once he sort of switched, he did, but I'll be, I think there were a lot of people who were kind of alarmed by Jen Psaki's answer uh, at the, the first briefing when she was asked about the Mexico City policy, and she kind of stumbled around a little bit. I think that's going to be one of the places where the tension between sort of the the more left wing of the Democratic Party and the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party sort of end up going head to head. And I think it's going to tell us a lot. All right. Well, that is the news. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So the piece I looked at was how Trump's COVID chaos drowned the FDA and junk science by um, Catherine Bond at Vanity Fair. It's a long read, but it's just captivating. It has all these incredible details about the relationship between FDA and the relatively new commissioner once COVID struck Stephen Hahn and the White House and the White House's political interference with Hahn. It really sort of narrates how the White House was able to kind of push things on the FDA, you know, VIP cure ideas that really derailed their scientists from looking at other things, sort of because Han, I think, initially was fairly weak and didn't have the political savvy of how to navigate this and push back. And it kind of chronicles the whole trajectory and then gets to a point where Han sort of eventually switches after this fallout with the emergency use authorization and a very embarrassing press conference about convalescent plasma where he kind of vastly overstated what was known and the ability of that product. And basically all of his senior staff kind of criticized the FDA in a big USA Today editorial. And he sort of flips and I think finally kind of sort of stood up to the White House to some degree and really changed the process um, in terms of how the vaccines were moving through the FDA or, you know, it's just it's worth it just for all those little details of like FDA's top vaccine guy sitting on the floor in the White House for a meeting and the images of Stephen Hahn rushing to this press conference. It's just all those juicy details of kind of how things work behind the scenes that um, I think people will really enjoy. I actually haven't read the whole thing yet, but I am looking forward to it. Tammy. So one of the other main Biden priorities is racial equity on a lot of different fronts, but particularly on the vaccine front, because we know that black and brown Americans, they've been dying from COVID at higher rates. They've been getting COVID at higher rates. We know that they have higher uninsured rates. You know, that's been a longstanding issue. So now uh, two of your colleagues, Julie at uh, KHN, Hannah Recht and Lauren Weber have written a story that, you know, sadly, not surprisingly, there's also, you know, lack of equity among the vaccination rates. And so they wrote a story that's titled uh, Black Americans are getting vaccinated at lower rates than white Americans. And it's uh, showing that 
In the 16 states that have released data by race, white residents are getting vaccinated at significantly higher rates than black residents, according to the analysis. In many cases, two to three times higher. What they found the most uh, dramatic case is that 1.2% of white Pennsylvanians had been vaccinated as of January 14th, compared to only 0.3% of black Pennsylvanians. Now, there's various reasons for this. Part of it is access, as we were discussing before. You know, if you only have the vaccines in hospitals and pharmacies, it may not be getting into some areas uh, for black and brown communities. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in New York City, we're, you know, we're realizing that the officials are realizing that and they are pushing more towards public housing units and uh, public housing complexes and other places where they can get it. But one of the other issues is that there's a lot of mistrust. And, you know, there have been a lot of issues in the the past with, you know, America conducting various experiments and other, you know, medical issues with people of color. And so a lot of people of color don't want to get vaccinated. They're not lining up. So this is a big issue because it's going to affect their communities and affect the entire country if they don't get it. So it's a good read. Alice. Yes. So I have a very unsettling <laughs> choice here. It's a piece in the New York Times by Apoorva Mondavilli called Emerging Coronavirus Variants May Post Challenges to Vaccines. It's highlighting a couple new studies with the caveat that these are not yet peer-reviewed, uh, but it's showing that as uh, the virus evolves and part of the reason it can evolve is because infections were just allowed to spread uh, totally out of control control around the world and here in the U.S., which makes it more likely that there will be new variants. And some of these new variants are looking like they don't respond the same to vaccines that are currently available. So this is just something to keep an eye on to see what happens with it. Um, right now, you know, the guidance from public health officials is, you know, we, we want to depend on these vaccines and they are effective against the new variants so far. But uh, I think this also just highlights that we're all going to need to be wearing masks and social distancing for a long time, even after we get vaccinated. I just ordered a fancy new mask. Um, well, I also have a COVID story this week. I think that's the first time we've had four COVID stories for extra credits. Mine is from The Atlantic. It's called Pramila Jayapal is Next Level Angry by Elaine Godfrey. And while we've all heard or read or even saw how members of the House evacuated from the floor during the January 6th riot were stuck together in a too small room and how some Republicans refused to put on masks even after they were offered to them, uh, several members in that room subsequently came down with COVID, including Jayapal, who, by the way, had just had knee replacement surgery. She'd had her first COVID vaccine and a negative test just the day before. But the point of the story isn't just that Jayapal is mad, which she is. It's that there is an entire wing of the Republican Party that doesn't believe in science. And that's going to make President Biden's unity message that much harder to sell. So the work just starts from here. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. Tammy at Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.